are listening to, If It's Worth Doing, the third in a sermon series entitled, Perfecting Ourselves to Death, taught in the summer of 2008 at Hocassa Baptist Church. And now, Pastor John. Good morning again. It's good to see you. We find ourselves in message number three of our sermon series entitled, Perfecting Ourselves to Death. And I should say, uh, we said from the beginning that as we go on, as time develops in our message series, we're going to try to move from, uh, or we're going to make a trajectory from maybe the theological to the practical. And as I say that, I just want to encourage you that practical does not mean unspiritual. And sometimes we think when we get practical, we escape the spiritual. But uh, for the Christian, right, every decision is spiritual. And so this conversation, this message, and this reflection on the Scriptures is every bit as spiritual as the past few weeks. Uh, so in thinking about it, as we, as we do kind of get a little more practical, I, I feel that I owe you a confession or an admission of at least some obvious attribute of perfection, and that is simply that there are areas in our daily life where we expect perfection and receive it. So the past two weeks, uh, Rick and I have spoke, and we've said uh, perfection, perfectionism uh, is problematic, that it is impossible to achieve perfection in our life, and I, and I stick by those guns. I'm not uh, like recanting any previous statement. But what I want to encourage you is that there are some areas in life where we expect perfection and we see it. Particularly in our Western culture, which has become pretty systematic and process-oriented in their systems, you simply expect perfection. So when you go to the grocery store and you get your canned good and it, you, you beep it, you know, boot. You expect that that series of eight you know, numbers come up with the right price. And even if it happens 98% of the time, it annoys you the 2% of the time that they have to do a price check. Because we expect it. We have a right to expect it. There's a mechanism, there's a, mechanism, there's a process, there's a system, and it works. Your calculator always says that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And you wouldn't tolerate a calculator that would occasionally give you an alternate answer, right? We, uh, so there are areas, and I just want to affirm some of you here today who spend your life in the process or in the system or in the mechanism to say, I understand that in some places perfection is the standard, and it's okay. There's a pastor named Randy Croft. He, he, I guess he preached a similar series, but he had this reflection which is worth mentioning. He started reflecting on what would life look like if some of the things we take for granted were effective 99.9% of the time, only 99.9% of the time. So he's thinking, what if things fail just 0.1% of the time? And here's some things, here's some conclusions he drew. If our world operated only on only 99.9% accuracy, then we would have to accept 2 million documents lost by the IRS each year, 22,000 checks would be deducted from the wrong bank account every hour. Twelve babies would be given to the wrong parent every day. 268,000 defective tires would be shipped out each day. 18 major plane crashes every day around the world. 99.9% accuracy. Doctors operating on the wrong patient 500 times a week. 17,000 pieces of mail lost by the post office every hour. 
and your heart would skip 864 beats a day at 99.9% accuracy. In a world of mechanization and process and system, there are some elements that will be perfect and we expect it to be perfect. And so I want to encourage you that if you're in your job place, you need to make sure that things are just right. It may be the case. I care that the one is carried on my bank algorithm. Whoever did that, whoever programmed that, thank you. You know, whoever sits in the cubicle to make sure my one continues to get carried, I appreciate it because it's important. But we need to start asking a question, which is, does the same rule apply when we transition from process and system and these mechanisms to people? Can we expect 99.9% accuracy when we're dealing with our wife or our husband or our friend or our child? And I think where this gets problematic is you and I go day to day kind of being inculcated with this expectation that there are some of the things we see the most of are 100% accurate. And then we go home and we deal with people and we are always less than 99.9% accurate. Sometimes I feel like if I'm batting 500, I'm having a good day. And so we find ourselves asking the question, how much can be expected of those around us? And what kind of negative mindset is being given to us by assuming that perfection is the standard? And so that's what we'll be talking about this morning, is kind of reflecting this morning that people are not organism or mechanisms, they're organisms. And we cannot expect this kind of perfection from ourselves or from others. And so for us to say we just like it to be just right when we're speaking of our marriage is not only impossible, it's sinful. Because there has to be room in our hearts to expect and understand weakness and failure and to live with that. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So if you'll pray with me, we'll get started. Lord Jesus, we recognize that you are the only truly perfect being, the only perfect person. And so, Lord, we commit our spirits to you this morning. We ask that our worship would be pure, our our desires and our questions would be honest, and that we would listen to your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we start, uh, there's a few ground rules about perfectionism. First, I'd like to say that everybody here is sitting on some continuum of perfectionism. So if you think you're not a perfectionist, you give somebody enough time and they'll find out that one place that you really are. And there's some of you who think you're totally perfectionist and you're different from everybody else, and I just want to encourage you that perfectionism is, is a spectrum. We all kind of experience it differently, and so some of you are more so than others. Some of you may be clinical about it, and some of you may not have to deal with it very much, but I just want to encourage you that this message today is not for the person next to you. It's for you. So with that said, I want to give a quick working definition of perfectionism, and then we'll, we'll kind of be off to the races. The definition that I'm kind of working from is this desire to be unblemished or faultless in some or all aspects of life. It's a desire to be unblemished or faultless in some or all aspects of life. And on the inside of your bulletin, there's this little nifty chart that kind of gives some thoughts about that. I plagiarized some smart people, and uh, you can look at that at your leisure. We don't have the time to talk about all of those bullets, so rest in peace. We won't. What I would like to do, though, is to kind of focus and narrow our focus this morning on the attribute of perfectionism, which is this heavy emphasis on success. That in perfectionism, there is this great motivation, or is there is this emphasis 
to succeed. There's this focus on performance. And that's where we're going to look this morning. We're going to kind of look at two uh, negative fruits that bear themselves out from that kind of mindset. And so with that said, I, I, I'm going to start describing perfectionism as it kind of works itself out from this, this desire to succeed, this desire for performance. And the first thing you see is with perfectionists that they weigh their personal value based on how they perform. So a perfectionist mindset thinks well, good about itself if it has a good day. And if it has a bad day, it thinks bad about itself. To succeed is to be valued, and to fail is to be worthless. And so some of you who aren't so perfectionist-minded, you fail and you're like, ah, I always fail. I'm never doing anything right. Where's the cake? You know, you're so like lighthearted about it. But there are others who fail on the smallest details, and it wraps them up because their sense of personal value is attached. It's this idea of contingent value or contingent acceptance, that if they do well, they're worth, they're worth something. They're lovable. They're of value. People will love them. And if they fail, they're worthless. And it's, for those of us who aren't that way, that is a cry for compassion. Because that is a life of anxiety. And that's a life that's bred by having parents who are constantly critical or abusive environments where people constantly are telling you, you can't, you won't, not good enough. And so people who grow up this way don't do it on purpose. They don't wake up one morning and go, you know what, I think for the rest of my life I'm going to live a life of anxiety. Because if I, met, if I wear the wrong shoes today, I will feel like a failure. If I gain a pound on the scale... I'll feel like a failure. If this project at work doesn't get accepted, I'll be worthless. That is a burden. That is a heavy burden to be carried. And what happens with this kind of mindset, the fruit that starts to work out of it is, perfectionists with this challenge feel a need to judge everything. Because if, if, if their decisions are weighed, if there's a value behind what they're going to do, then all of their decisions start to matter. So it's very difficult for a perfectionist to say, Ah, it doesn't matter, whatever you want to do. For them, it matters. There's a right and a wrong answer. And there's this proclivity to start heading down a path of kind of creating a black and white world. Perfectionists like to have black and white answers. This is the right answer and this is the wrong answer. That way they know they chose the right answer. Everywhere they look, they, they, they don't, ah, we can go anywhere to eat. Or, ah, it doesn't matter what you wear. Or, you know, do we go this way with a business model or that way? Do we do make this decision in the church or that decision in the church? What kind of music do we sing? How does it look? It's not, it is not easy for them to go, you know what, they're just different options. For the perfectionist, one is better and one is worse. And the decision matters because their value hinges on it. And so the first fruit we're going to look at this morning in Scripture is that out of that mindset, out of this legalistic kind of mindset that there's a black answer and a white answer, there's a good answer and a bad answer, comes this focus on the details. Perfectionists are classic examples of people who get caught up in the details and they lose the heart of the issue. Because the heart of the issue cannot be weighed. This big issue, be a good church, how do you weigh that? How do you paint that in black and white? You can't paint it in black and white unless you cut it up into a thousand little pieces and make a thousand right answers. And so this first fruit of perfectionism is this desire to, to kind of immerse yourself in the details, to miss the big picture. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 23 if you want to read along. 
In Matthew 23, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees have a lot of other issues besides perfectionism, but perfectionism is one of them. And the Pharisees, in an attempt, and we've kind of talked about this the past two weeks, but there's an attempt for them to kind of determine, are they of value or not to the kingdom? And the way they've done that is by figuring out, breaking out the kingdom of God into 500, 600 little laws. All these tiny little rules. And then they kind of go, well, I did this, but I didn't do that. But I did 480 of them, and so I didn't do 20 of them. Right? And then whatever percentage that is. Whoever person can carry the one in here, you can figure that out. But the Pharisees are dealing with that, and so Christ comes and he addresses it because they've missed the mark. And so this is what he says, starting in the 23rd verse of the 23rd chapter. He's been saying it for a while, but I'm going to pick up here. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a net, but you swallow a camel. See what Christ is saying? When he says you give a tenth of your spices, he's saying they're so conscious to be correct on their tithe that they go to their mac and cheese box in the pantry and they divide out a tenth of the noodles. Right? And they open all their 12-ounce cans of pop, and they pour out a tenth of that to make sure that exactly the right amount of tithe is going. And he's saying to them, through the anxiety of being right, through the anxiety of seeking value and doing the right thing, they have this huge burden that's absolutely ridiculous, and it loses sight of justice, compassion, faithfulness, the elements that are the heart of the kingdom is what Christ is calling them to. He's saying, you need to see the heart of the kingdom, not the details. Grading ourselves, performance-oriented tells us, pray five times a day. If we're performance-oriented, if we need to know how often to pray, that's what we're yearning for, is for, for me to sit up here and say, you ought to pray five times a day, or you ought to have a morning devotion, or you ought not listen to secular music or you ought not to go to an R-rated movie. The perfectionists in you eat that stuff up because now you know you're a good Christian or you're, oh, I'm a bad Christian, but tomorrow I'll be a good Christian. But I'm not here to say that. I'm here to say the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. How do you weigh that? How do you, when, when are you joyful enough? When are you patient enough? When do you say, today I was successfully loving? The Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount asked Christ, so how often ought I forgive someone who has offended me? Seven times? Right? Christ's answer, 70 times 7, says, you ought to be forgiving. You ask me how much you should tithe, you're not going to get, I don't think Christ would give it, and you're not going to get from me an amount or percentage. I'm going to say, foster a giving spirit. Be generous. Give to those in need. Seek the Spirit. Be generous in your tithes and your offerings. Look for opportunities to let go. That's what I would say. You cannot weigh that. They're unweighable, which makes it hard for perfectionists. But we don't change the kingdom, we change ourselves. In Romans 13, Paul's writing to the Romans, and he's telling them to be good citizens. He's got this little... uh, little dealio going where he's like, you need to submit to your governing authorities and be good citizens. And, and partly we, partway through chapter 13, he starts to talk to them about a little checklist of good citizenship. So you want a checklist of good citizenship? He says, I'll give you one. 
And he says this. This is why, well here, I'll pick up in verse 7 of 13. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. That is the kind of checklist the perfectionist loves to hear. Am I a good citizen? Well, I paid my taxes. I so, am honest about my revenue. I respect those who are in authority above me. Right? I give honor when I'm required to give honor. I'm a good Christian. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul starts there. And then he says this. In verse 8, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Paul says... The only thing you can never succeed in is you are constantly in debt of love to one another. You can pay your taxes and think you're a good Christian. You can, pay, you can report your revenue. You can give respect. You can give honor. But you and I are in constant debt of love to one another. And he says, if you want to fulfill the law, that is the law. How do you weigh that? It's unweighable. We cannot create a detail or a little tiny law that encompasses that idea. And in fact, he continues. He says, you know the commandments. Do not covet. Do not lust. Do not murder. He says, every one of those is wrapped up in this little law, love your neighbor as yourself. The tendency to focus on the small things and miss the whole spirit of the Lord is a perfectionist tendency that is to sin. When we confine our faith to our strengths, when we confine our faith to the little things that we can do, we're limiting the Spirit. And we're, we're missing the joy of the Spirit in our lives. And that's the first outworking, the first negative outworking that we're going to tell about. The second one that we're going to work on this morning, talk about, is a desire for perfectionists to stay in a comfortable realm. Perfectionists, if what we do matters... If the things that we do, the success that we have is, is, is weighable, and if our value is attached to our performance, we become the last people on earth who want to take a risk. And perfectionists are classically people who avoid risk and avoid failure. They avoid change. They're uncomfortable with change. They resist these things because to take a risk is to risk failure. There's a saying that... Uh, even many perfectionists like to say, you know, some of the perfectionist mantras are, you know, I just like things to be done just right. That's what you can hear. Another one you'll hear is, well, if it's worth doing, it's, it's, it's worth doing right. That's when someone like me goes, come on, man. I'm starving. Let's go. Well, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. You know? Let's go to bed. Well, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. These are, these are the kind of the perfectionist mantras. That... I think if Christ was looking at it, he would say, you know what, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing. Why do we confine our lives to just what we do right? Christ would say, you are not, you are not subject, you are not, it's not right for you simply to do what you do right. You do what I tell you to do. The kingdom is not for us to simply pick and choose. These are the four aspects of the kingdom that I do well. So I'll do these four aspects of the kingdom. The God, God would say, is, are you a subject to my kingdom or not? And when we decide we're just going to do what we do well, we're placing the kingdom subject to us. I think Christ would go even farther. Christ would say, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing. I would even say, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. Christ would say to us, why would you not do something just because you would fail? 
In fact, it is in our weaknesses and our failures that the Lord shows up. You and I don't usher the kingdom in by doing what we do well. We usher the kingdom in by being, being willing to do what we may fail at. We usher God's kingdom in by creating a room that he can glorify himself. God doesn't glorify himself when he asks you to do something that you're perfectly capable of doing. God glorifies himself when he calls you out and does something that you could never have imagined. And so that for the rest of your life, you say, I don't know what happened, but God did it. That's how God glorifies himself. And perfectionists never take that step. Because for them, they say, if I can do it right, it's worth doing. But Christ says, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing even if it's poorly. Second Corinthians 12, Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He's trying to describe his ministry to those around him. He's trying to describe why is he doing what he's doing. And he's trying to explain his ministry with regards to the fact that he has what he calls a thorn in his side. That's what Paul says. He says, for some reason the Lord has allowed Satan to put a thorn in his side. We don't know exactly what it was. Most people think it's maybe a medical ailment. But at any rate, he's wrestling in the letter to the Corinthians on why the Lord allowed this thorn in his side. Why all this weakness? And this is what he says. He says this. He says he pleads to Christ. Three times he said, take this thorn from me. How much better could I be for the kingdom if I could do everything well? That's what Paul's thinking. If I, if I could do everything well, how much more effective can I be? And this is what Christ says. In fact, it's in red letters in my book, which is exciting because it, it gives me the feeling like Christ actually spoke to Paul here. This is what Christ says. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul writes, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Your perfectionist desire to not take risks because risks mean failures and failures means you're not worth much is sinful. The beauty of the gospel is that God shows up at the very beginning and says, I don't love you because you're valuable. I, you are valuable because I love you. He pulls the carpet out right, right immediately from a perfectionist. He says, I didn't come to you and call you to the kingdom because I rec- recruited you for a key position on our ball team. You don't have some kind of statistic or talent or gift that God needs. Your value is in the fact that Christ loved you. And so when we, when we see ourselves that way, we can take risks. But when we see ourselves as, if I mess up, I may be unlovable. If I make a mistake, I may be of less value. Then we become very resistant to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's this thing we call the Lord's Prayer. And in it it says, Our Father who art in heaven, right? I memorized it in my King James Version. So, uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then it has this phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I think it is impossible for some of us to pray that if we do not let go of something today. That if we are truly perfectionists, we are resistant to God's kingdom coming because when God's kingdom comes and his will is done, it's going to happen through your weaknesses. It's going to happen by calling you out of your comfort and into a place where God can glorify himself. 
So I pray this morning that we might let go of things so we can pray that honestly. I'm closing the message. And I kind of want to soften the blow. I feel like I've dropped a big hammer uh, on you perfectionists. I feel that way because I'm probably not one so much. Uh, But I will say this. I will say that at the end of the day, Christ loves you. And if you define your life by what you've done, I'm here to give you good news. That Christ loves you. That Jesus loves you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That nothing you can do can make Christ love you more or make Christ love you less. That you are loved because he first loved us. And so I would encourage you this morning that if your family has always criticized you, if you've come from a life where you feel worthless and you strive and strive and strive to perform so that you're acceptable, I'm here to say that God doesn't need that. But I'm also here to charge all the non-perfectionists in the house. And this one I can say a little easier because it resonates with me, which is we have no right to go, perfectionists. This morning we're called to, a, to compassion because, I, like I said, the person who is in this room who is a perfectionist did not wake up one day and voluntarily place this huge burden on their shoulders to carry around for the rest of their life. It is a burden of anxiety, of stress, of ill health. And we are called, those of us who are willy-nilly, are called to live lives of compassion because you may be the willy-nilly person in the household that is making your spouse the way they are So I encourage you, and I charge you, that just because you're not a perfectionist doesn't mean this message doesn't ring. It's a charge this morning to fill yourself with compassion and to love those people unconditionally because it may be the thing they've never seen before. Please pray with me. Lord, we're not perfect. No one here is perfect. But Lord, it's, it's always our tendency to weigh our actions, weigh our results, and kind of chalk them up to what we've done, to how good we are. We have our good days and our bad days, and somehow it's so easy for us on a good day to think you like us, and on a bad day to think you don't. And Lord, even as our children and our, and our spouses and people at work, Lord, we, we confess to you that sometimes some of us have worked so hard to clean the house that it never feels like a home. Lord, and we confess to you that some of us have pushed our children so hard to succeed athletically that they've come to hate the sport we wanted them to play. And Lord, we confess that we're people who spend so much time trying to make a dinner party just right that we never fellowship with the people who come. Or Christians who exhaust so much energy to do the right thing that we never experience the Spirit. And so, Lord, we confess that to you and thank you that you love us for who we are our mistakes and all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.